0: Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to come, Lord, and to preach your word. I pray, Father God, that my heart and my head are clear today, Father God, that, that I am not um, Father God, that I'm not conflicted about this. but that also, Father God, I pray at the same time that I'm deeply cautious about a, a proclamation, Father God, of, of, of the Word to the church, not because the Word, Father God, has any reason to apologize, but because, Father God, I realize that as a man and in the depths of my immaturity and my sinfulness, Father God, I can get carried away and say things, Father, that aren't helpful to the church but are harmful, Father. I believe, Father, that, that this whole first chapter, Father God, but especially this verse speaks volumes to the church lord that we have to unpack we have to take time to look at it to to talk about it father god and i believe it's an accusation against the church it was an accusation near the time of peter and it's just as much an accusation right now in 2020 father god so for that reason as we gather to do this father i believe there's an important mandate upon of our time today father god and upon those who uh, the one Myself, Father God, who preaches, and Father God, anyone who listens in whatever format they listen, I believe, Lord, there is a responsibility that comes with hearing this truth today. I believe, Father God, that you are, God, that you have an accusation against the church today. And that, Father God, there's only one solution to this accusation. as There's, a, there's only one, Father God, solution to any of the problems that face the church today. The only solution, Father, the only solution, God, is the gospel. So, Father God, for that reason, I pray now, Father, that, that you give us a clarity of, of, of our thoughts and our, our hearts and our ideas, that you keep our passions at bay, keep my passion at bay, Father God. May I preach this, Lord, not, not workmanlike, Father, but may I preach it with all the thunder and lightning that you provide and, that my, uh, and Father God, refrain from trying to provide it myself. And, Father God, I pray, Lord, that, that as much as there's a clarity, that in everything that's stated from this pulpit, Father God, there's a perspicuity. The people understand it they know what I'm talking about I know Father God I can be so obtuse at times but Father God I pray Lord that this is a simple message for complicated times that's what I pray for today Father God I love you and I thank you Father in the name of Christ I pray amen so Peter writes in 2nd Peter 1 13 he says I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminders this is two in fact we're gonna get three verses in a row In many ways, Peter talks about this idea of reminding the church. Um, So one of those things we might take away today is, folks, is that part of the duty, the function of of a preacher and of the preaching ministry is to remind the church constantly, just bluntly, folks, of who we are, of how we are people of the book, how God determines through his written word, our attitudes and our ideas about virtually every topic. God tells us what to think, what to think about every situation, so therefore we're not on our own out there being buffeted by all these different philosophies. We don't have to worry about what the world thinks about marriage or family or money or life, because God's told us. So it doesn't matter what the media says. It doesn't matter what my mother thinks or my father thinks. It only matters what my heavenly father has proclaimed to be true. It's the only truth that matters. And that that part of preaching is to gather people around and remind them on a weekly or daily basis. This is who we are and this is where we get our truth. There's that reminder. So now we can establish for our Study through this epistle, three things, and share them real fast. That we take directly from this verse. One, Peter believes that his actions are right for the church and a reflection of the will of God for His people. Now, that's I call it a twofold realization. But really, I guess I would, if I go back and re, and would rewrite that, I would say there's a warning here. There's a warning. I can get in the pulpit and say things that are biblically factual, but they are harmful to the church because they're not really imbued with truth, all right? The Bible definitely says that, but in the way in which I am saying it to you, it's not gonna have the impact of gospel. I can offend you with biblical facts. It doesn't change what the Bible says about them. But my job isn't to spew Biblical facts at you, but to preach biblical truth to you in a way that your heart is made tender by. It doesn't mean everybody walks away saying that's exactly the truth and I'm always going to believe that. It doesn't mean that at all. But we don't always have to offend. Sometimes, folks, biblical truth offends just like biblical facts can be avoided. Can be avoided. I think too often in the preaching ministry, we look to, for lack of a better term, step on toes. Because at least it elicits a reaction. A lot of us folks are used to preaching to faces that never change. All right? Faces that get there with the same look and leave with the same look. Churches that that have no reaction, no matter what you do. And so, so men start to gild the lily, for lack of a better term. They preach harder and more violently because even an angry reaction means people are actually listening. People are actually listening. So now Peter believes his actions are right for the church and a reflection of the will of God for his people. Twofold realization. First, Peter's intention is not to hurt, but to help the church. That's got to be my intention every time I get up here. I'll be honest with you, it's hard. Because it's very easy when armed with biblical truth to fall into this place of rebuke, of having a scolding tone every time you preach. Now it doesn't mean... Folks, that the church is always right about everything. It doesn't mean that the church and its sermons need to be free of rebuke. That's pointless preaching. That preaching never reaches anybody. If everybody walks in and gets affirmed and confirmed every single Sunday, there is no motivation, no, no, no power for change, right? Because you're being told you're okay. Now, that's modern New Age preaching, and it grows mag- magnificent edifices to falsehood there's no doubt it does it gathers a crowd because everybody feels so good about going there so good so so we're not going to offer a scolding tone of rebuke every single time but we are to understand that what we say here is designed first and foremost to help the church be the church along that line Peter does this to specifically bring a call to right action and thinking to his letter. So he's calling these people to do something. Every single sermon, man, you ever hear in your life ought to do that. Call you to believe something differently than maybe you've believed before, to reaffirm a belief that you've held forever, and to act on those beliefs. There's never been a real sermon that's ever been uttered that called people to do nothing. I'm afraid that far, far too many places you get sermons that call people to do nothing because they're just terrified of their people. They're terrified of of a revolt from their people because they're being told that they've got to do something. Why come to church? Why in the world come to church and have sermons, have preaching, if they're not going to call us to do things differently than we're doing them? Or encourage us to do those things that we're doing that are in line with the will and purpose of God? That's the whole point of it. Peter's trying to get people to do something, to think something. And I'll be just blunt with you to feel something. To burn a little bit. He's stirring. Has a passion. Care about the things that God cares about. And reject the things that God hates. Because see, the problem is, we didn't do that for a long time. And we tried to do it nice and we tried to do it tender. I mean in the church as a whole. And what we got were a lot of people that went where the fire was. And the fire was in the world. And so they burn for worldly things. And they don't burn for godly things. They don't even remember what it's like to burn for godly things. So we got to confront that. The role of every leader in the church is to inspire and not hamper the broad. Yeah, I want to light a fire under the bride of Christ today so that we'll do things differently in the days, weeks, months, years to come. As the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, verse 35, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. I think the church as a whole has, in many cases, tossed away its confidence. God gave us something, a confidence in Him, a precious gift, and because we didn't respect it, because we didn't value it, because it kind of got in the way at times, what did we do? We, we, we turned our backs on it. Many in the church toss at their confidence in the name of personal freedom or undisciplined passions. Yeah, there's a lot of the church saying, you know, I know God gave me this confidence, that confidence is built on an understanding of the truth that flows out of a relationship with Christ and an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We understand all those things to be absolutely true. But understanding truth gets in the way of me doing what I want to do. Hey, look, I don't pick on anybody. But in general, if I want to go to bars and casinos, and God's word tells me to to abstain from all appearance of evil, then the only way I can go to bars and, can see and casinos is to, to abandon the confidence that comes from the truth. They say, "Oh well, God, God says this, but I'm not really going to follow that because I really want to do something differently." World of the church pursuing undisciplined passions. And the pursuing those indiscipline passions by walking away from what made them believers. And that was a confidence in Christ. Not not in in the essence, but in the application. Not walking away from the cross, not walking away from the gospel, not walking away from the truth in so many ways it's impacted upon their lives, but walking away from the essence of practicing that. Of living and believing and acting like believers. Stay focused on Christ. Two, Peter states that his time is limited. Therefore, his ministry is modeling that essential desperation for completion that all humans require. Solomon explains in Ecclesiastes 9.10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. In other words, get busy about your father's business because you can die today. Is there anything more direct than that? How many people have I met in my life in my journey through the church who said things like, as soon as I retire, I'm really going to serve the Lord? Two points. One, one very, very blessed few of those people who said that actually managed to serve the Lord in retirement. The other one is this. I can't tell you how many retired men and women I've talked to in, in 20 plus years of ministry I have yet to talk to one who did not have the health to serve the Lord that wished they had the health to serve the Lord. You know what they wish for? They wish they had the health to go back to work. Amen or O oh me. They wish they could get back because, because they, their, their, their opinion of themselves, their definition of themselves, who they were was in work and not in, in service to our Lord. We better start to serve him now. Because if you're waiting and hoping you have enough health in your 60s or your 70s or your 80s to do it, you're gonna find out you don't. You'll find out because there was no because there was no investment in him along the way, he has now given no investment of health. Why should he? All I've ever demonstrated was that I would do, that I would decide for myself. Why? We will not live forever, and our most useful years do not necessarily span our entire lives. Folks, some of us stay remarkably healthy until very, very, very late in life. So much so that the rest of us look around and we think, what did they do right? And some people fall apart, don't they? Some people are way... Younger than their years should indicate, and some are way older. Some are way older. Some people are just, just get old really fast. And the assumption that, that if we live long enough and we get our financial uh, world where we want it to be and we're able to do that, then one of these days we'll be able to just, you know, live, uh, live for Christ is, is, a, is a faulty assumption. We're building those barns. For crops we've never planted. And God's requiring our soul of us today. Get busy doing what you're called to do. And do not wait until retirement to attempt to impact the kingdom. Do what you're called to do today. All along the way. Don't save it for the end because you're assuming the end's going to be a certain way. And it's probably not going to be that way. Three. Peter's intention is to stir the church to new action and new thinking. He's changing the church. In a little phrase... Peter's saying, I'm stirring you guys up. I'm going to keep reminding you of the gospel and, what it, and the impact the gospel has on lives, what it looks like when it's in a, in a life. I'm going to keep doing that because I want to stir something up in you. I'll be honest with you. A sleepy church is a wasted church. What we need is a living, breathing, acting church. A church overcome with passion. A church defined, not just by what they believe, but how what they believe has impacted their lives. Something must be stirred within us that will overtake the inertia in our lives and create a momentum for self-awareness and self-change. Naturally, naturally, we grow more and more sedate, don't we? And I don't mean that we sit around more. I mean we become more and more stuck in our ways. More and more we have decided who we are and what's right and what we're supposed to do. And it doesn't matter what the Bible says. Because we've decided on our own. There's an inertia there. There's a wicked, devilish inertia. That'll keep people locked into these That don't bring honor and glory to God. But that walk the same path. To be honest with you. They've always walked. It's the familiar. We don't want change. We are conservative by nature. The Momentum for self-awareness and self-change is and a passion for the Gospel and the world that's not self-centered, but Gospel-centered. If there's anything we must learn to do today is not live a self-centered, self-assessed life, but live a Gospel-centered life where everybody says, look, this is what God's Word says. So this is what I've got to do. Now, a better way to say it maybe is this. What's gonna happen in your life right now, believer? What's gonna happen in your life if you read the Bible as if it was literally true. Now we read some parts of it super literal and other parts we read very symbolic. What if God really means for us to do those crazy things that other people do? We've always rejected it. We've always said you're not supposed to do that. We've always felt this locked into this lifestyle that we couldn't get out of. What if God really meant those things? meant that my life wasn't supposed to look the way I want it to look, but supposed to look the way he wants it to look. What's going to happen? What's going to happen if you run into a church just like this one, no bigger, just like this one, where everybody starts to read the Bible as if it were literally true? What's going to happen? John R. W. Stott rightly commented. He said, the truth is that there are such things as Christian tears, and too few of us ever weep them. The beginning of this. I read Stott's quote, and it so went in line with what Peter had to say about being stirred up and our passions being stirred. And I thought to myself, if that's anything to describe the church of, of, of the United States right now, that's the word right now. Now, look, we're good at fear. We're terrified of what happens in Portland, what happens in Chicago. Goodness gracious alive, we're so terrified of, of societal upheaval and all those kinds of things. Well, fine. But you know, the reality is that God's the Lord of that just as much as He's the Lord of everything else. And not one single hair of your head will come to harm unless our God allows it to happen. We'll be terrified of groups we see on on television. Our fear will be so stirred within us. We'll just be afraid in our bones even though it's thousands of miles away from us. But yet we'll slaughter babies in the womb and families are torn apart and sin runs rampant. And the world and the media destroys everything that God tries to build. And we won't shed a single tear for that. Not a single tear. We'll just shake our heads. I'm going to tell you that, that when God judged Israel, He preserved those who cried and wept at the sin they saw around them. Weep, weep the bitter tears of a believer. See this world around us and cry for the souls of those who are lost and condemned. What he's really saying, Scott is saying, same thing that Peter is saying, is that the church is in danger of losing its heart. It's supposed to care when the world dies and goes to hell. It's supposed to be the, the, the army that's aligned against that. And what is it? Oh well, better than than me. My fear is for a cold church, a dead church, a lifeless monolith dedicated to our personal lives and not to the Holy Spirit and to the cross, a church that's emotionally lost its way, that cares deeply about itself and cares about its own issues, but doesn't care about the cross anymore. Instead, the church, uh, those called by his marvelous gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to to, to live set apart lives to his glory has become so concerned with its own perceived problems they cannot see that the issue that is actually destructive in other words we'll sit around and talk about the state of marriage and we'll talk about the state of of, of of money and we'll talk about we'll talk about life and we'll talk about Child rearing. We'll talk about all those things. And those are important issues. Don't get me wrong. I will say over and over again how important those issues are. But the underlying issue that causes all of that is the fact that far, far too many people within our midst have not truly embraced the gospel for salvation. The issue the world's facing is not a degradation of marriage or a degradation of the image of life. The the issue the world's facing is the fact that the world is lost. Why is the church in the state it's in? Because, because the church has stopped preaching the gospel to itself. Collectively, we've replaced a single vital faith with a host of social issues and heartfelt desires, unintentionally admitting to the world uh, that the world is in our midst. We've adopted all these other things. But what we've done is we've allowed the church to come in, the world to come into the church. John wrote in First John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Our duty from the pulpit is to drive a wedge between our desire for assimilation into the world around us, to sanitize its desires and its priorities, and to call the church to embrace a purposeful difference. God has called us out of darkness to be light for the world, to be radically different. Not to look like them, but be a little bit more modest. Not to think like they think, but to not say dirty words. Look, the world's, the world's got a lot bigger problem than the fact that, it's, that it uses nasty language. A lot bigger problem. Its Sins are condemning it to hell. We can't clean that up. We can't take away the foul language and somehow live a life that God approves of if we live it in a worldly way. To call the church to embrace a purposeful difference. We are different on purpose. Christ Jesus explained this best in Matthew 16, 25-26 when he said, For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The question is very simple. Are we ready today as a church to lose our lives for the sake of Christ? To turn our back on what is familiar and what we've already always done and to walk the real path, the new path, the only path, the narrow path that leads to heaven. Are we ready to do that as a church? Not make excuses, not rationalize, not say everybody does it. Because you know what? Everybody does do it and everybody's going to hell. And we've got no right to walk the path, the broad path that leads to destruction. God has created the narrow path and called a people to walk that path. And if Christ dwells in you, you've been called to walk the narrow path. We've been called today to turn our backs on the world and its prophets for the glory of the prophet, priest, and king. Do not exchange your soul for engagement with the world, but trade your life for the glory that is to come through Christ. Look, the problem with the church is not marriage, Money, children, life, politics, these are problems. There's no doubt. They're issues. We have political issues. And these aren't issues about the way they were when I was a boy. These are issues of right and wrong, folks. These are issues of life and death. I'm not going to come in and advocate for one party or the other because they're both condemned. But I'm here to tell you, if you think you can just ignore politics, I'm telling you, the the easy, the the, the low fruit of politics has been picked. What's remaining right now is whether or not we'll regard a human being as a human being throughout their entire life. Whether or not you'll be free to practice your faith. That's real, folks. That's not how to handle the money the way politics has been most of our lives. This is real. It's going to define us. It's going to tear our country to pieces. Maybe... Maybe for the better. We'll either follow Christ or we'll follow Satan. But we won't be able to walk in the middle any longer. Or any other matter that tends to attract our hearts. The greatest concern for the church will always be legitimate salvation and authentic servanthood. That's our concern today. Whether or not we are really who we say we are and whether or not those who say, who pledge that they really belong to Christ are willing today to live the way Christ has given us to live. It's not really a hard idea at all. It's really a very easy idea. It's just difficult. It's difficult to deal with. Is the church truly saved and genuinely serving her God? No longer can we casually complain about how things are going in our church or world. Behind every understood problem is a question of born-again validity. Man, when we look at all the social issues that impact the church, whether it's marriage and divorce, whether it's drug abuse or or alcohol abuse, whether it is uh, misogyny and and, and, and sexual abuse, all these things that have been hot-button issues for about 10 years now in the Southern Baptist Church, I'll just tell you this much, Southern Baptist, at the heart is whether or not people are born-again believers. Because I tell you this much, a man who's a born-again believer is going to want to serve his family. A man who's a born-again believer is never going to lay his hands on his wife. A man who's a born-again believer is going to be faithful. And a woman the same way. The same way. Being born again is the issue that underlies everything that, that keeps us up at night. Are we who we say we are? And it's not about a proclamation, folks. It's about a daily professing. Paul commands us. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, it says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. First part of that verse, focus on just a second. The church will only grow by the fire of testing and will always wilt under the pressure of ignorance. I'm going to tell you this much. You have no, We have no right, and the Bible never said that somehow we could take our declared faith. Now, we're Southern Baptists, and it could have been at, you know, at any stage. 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 13, 20s, 30s, whenever. We've got no right to take that declared faith and put it under glass and tell people to never touch it and never look at it. That's not what the Bible says. We are born again believers who are constantly testing our faith. And to be honest with you, when we find something that we should be doing, the Bible clearly says we have a response to it, we don't ignore problems. We deal with problems. There's absolutely no set of problems on this earth that will get better if we ignore them. We deal with our issues. So Paul very clearly says, examine yourselves. See whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves daily, every single day. I'm testing me. You know why people don't test themselves? Because they're terrified. We're terrified of going down that path. We're afraid of doubt. We're afraid of fear. What Paul would say to us is the only path to real freedom is through testing. If you never never test your faith, there's always going to be in the back of your mind that fear. If you never examine it, you're always going to be afraid. Every time you do something that's, that's inconsistent with the gospel, and inconsistent with the faith in Christ, you're always going to fear doubt and fear. But if you test yourselves and you repent and you, and you draw your, your bead uh, tighter and closer to the gospel and you walk more fully in him, when you do that, you're going to find that you have greater faith. Because you've got a refined faith. True faith always prospers when it's challenged. Sin is uncovered and repented of, and biblical understanding flourishes when men and women are serious about their faith. Paul defines the Christian life best, the walk that we must emulate, when he says in Philippians three ten that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. There is nothing about the Christian faith does not lead us to walk a path that looks like that of Christ, in which he's he's laid out. We're walking in his shoes, in his footprints. I know him. Power resurrection. Sharing in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. All the essentials that believers seek, uh, the, all the issues that believers seek are essential marriage, family, money, life, etc. But they only reflect the glory of God's truth when the church fully surrenders heart, mind, and will to Christ. And we're only really doing what we're supposed to do when we've surrendered everything so that we can know him know him and that he can be known through us. In 2 Corinthians 13, Paul gives us two options for those who would hear the message in Corinth but experience consternation about the truth that he preaches. Paul knows that he's going to tell people to examine themselves, to test themselves, and there are going to be some people that are probably the whole congregation in Corinth is absolutely torn up by it. After all, this is a modern church in, in the ancient world. It's a church that's international. It's a church that's, that's syncretistic, that's, that's plowing together a whole lot of different lost attitudes and lost ideas. This is a church that would have practiced things like yoga if they'd known about them. Rob them of their religious significance and think that somehow its a path to health. Rob them of its, of its idolatry and think it's somehow a path to health. That's what would happen. It sounds like our culture, doesn't it? So he says this. Uh, uh, Paul says this. And he knows they're going to react. He knows there's gonna, probably going to be a violent reaction. And he goes ahead and he tells us. These are the reactions. Right here. The two reactions. First he writes. So do you not realize this about yourselves. That Jesus Christ is in you. Now. Paul is not ridiculously saying. That um, that there are men and women in the church are saved, but do not know they're born again. He's not doing that. He's not saying, well, these guys are saved over here. They really don't have any clue they're, they're saved. He's not saying that at all. What I believe he's saying is this. Instead, he's asking a question that's generally expressed in many different kinds of contexts. Um, maybe with an adult child, you might say something like, don't you realize you're an adult? Right? They know they're an adult, don't they? They've just forgotten that that kind of behavior isn't appropriate for adults, right? Paul does this a lot, by the way. Ask kind of snotty questions. Um, Do you not realize, uh, don't you realize that this is your job? You might say to somebody at work that's lazy and unconcerned. They know it's their job. They've just decided not to do their job because they're lazy. Don't you realize? Or, don't you realize that money does not grow on trees? We've all said this to our, to our children, right? Don't you realize you have to work for money? That isn't just handed to you? Now, the truth we know, the use of the question drives home the point. For, for, for Paul, he's just saying, don't you know that Christ dwells in you? Don't you know that you're born again? Don't you know that you aren't supposed to live like that? He's trying to to drive home this point so that they will do something differently. Paul's addressing a church that is born again but has lost its way in the world. They started to live in ways they had no right to live. They are real but not acting like it. And Paul is tapping into what is most vital in them. The engrafted word of the gospel and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which will bring them to remorse and repentance. I'm here to tell you this much. Now, I may not do it. I may talk about those questions or bring up this question right now, and you may blow this off. And that's I mean, that's not fine, but I get it. I get it. I've been in your shoes before. But I'm here to tell you this much. If this is really, if, if I'm sitting in your shoes and I'm not living the way God's calling me to live... I'm involved in things that I've no right being involved in, and going places that have no right to go. If I'm neglecting the gospel in my life, you know what I'm gonna feel? I'm either gonna be, feel really offended right now because I know it's talking about me, or I'm gonna feel really cut to the heart. Desperately cut to the heart because I know it's talking about me. Because I know it's about me. See you could. Paul uses these words to tap into guilt and shame, guilt and shame, which are natural, from having a conscience and to drive us back to to remorse and repentance. Solomon literally and symbolically says in Proverbs 19, verse 18, discipline your son for there's hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. The hope of the child is in the discipline of the father. Now, whether it's the earthly child that absolutely needs a father to provide discipline, or it's the the believer who needs their heavenly father to provide discipline. When God disciplines his church and leads them to repentance, it is deliverance from death and a demonstration of his love. God has two choices. Turn us around or shorten our lives. Turn that man or that woman around so they embrace the truth of, of, of his word or take their life take their life this is an act of love by God this is pain that is the pain of love because it's the pain of discipline as a church we know right because of gospel preaching and teaching we have the spiritual indwelling of Christ and God is calling us today to respond and follow him in every aspect of our lives you are called today I can't tell you what's wrong But I'm here to tell you this much. That God knows you better than I will ever know you. Better than you will ever know you. And if there's something in your life that does not belong there. Then God is confronting that today. He is doing it not in anger. But in the greatest love. He's doing it because the the hateful thing would be allow us to continue to be wrong. Remember who you belong to. And do not forsake him. Paul concludes his statement, though, with unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Some among us dearly loved and beckoned to by Christ have failed to meet the test. Their names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, and that is a tragedy that we cannot stomach. We don't say, oh well. We never say, oh well, to the lostness of this world. We never throw up our hands and shrug our shoulders as if we don't know what to do. What you do is the gospel. What you do is the proclamation of the gospel. What you do is God's people living out the gospel as loud as humanly possible. That's what you do in the face of the lostness that's around us. Our desire today is that the church, those who've answered the clarion call of the gospel, will live as if it is truly the body of Christ and not live as a rotting corpse indicative of Of a decaying world because most of the church today is that rotting corpse it looks so flashy and it looks so real but underneath it's just dead men's bones that we'll hear Jeremiah's words in Lamentations 3 verse 40 let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord so what you're called today church test examine your ways return to the Lord where you belong if you've drifted, if your heart has gone astray, if whether it's, whether it's because of, of months of, of being locked down, if that's what you've been, or whether it's just years and years and years of doing what you wanted to do and not doing what God was commanding you to do, if that is the case, then, then exact test, examine your ways, return to the Lord. As we do this, every person in this room and who hears uh, these words in any fashion is called to follow the king's Plan in Proverbs 28 verse 13. Solomon writes, "Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy." Dear sinner, you are found out. You can fool me and you can fool your family and you can fool those around you. you can fool this world to be honest with you, but you can't fool the living God. He knows by the living God who calls you today to stop hiding behind your mask of respectability and to confess before Him your sins. That's what He's calling you today, to turn your back on them and cry out for mercy that was earned on the cross and is freely given by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. If you'll do this today, if you'll turn your back on your sins and your face to Christ, if you'll believe Him and trust in Him, you will live. It is assured. Let's pray together.